Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we recently did an episode on Delphine Lalaurie and her former mansion at 1140 Royal Street in New Orleans in the French Quarter, which some call the most haunted house in America. And we talked about some of the spooky things that people have seen and experienced there. But of course, there are many haunted houses throughout the country and the world that are historically haunted, so to speak. So we thought it would be fun to cover a few more of them in our own little Halloween haunted house tour. Now, before you start emailing us already, we do realize that talking about ghosts and hauntings on a history podcast may be a little bit controversial, since we do normally, of course, try to focus on things that are indisputably based on fact, uh, or at least theories. But we think that whether you believe in ghosts or not, you can appreciate the history behind some of these homes, regardless. Some of the history that's even led to them being regarded as haunted. It's pretty fun stuff in a lot of cases, or at least spooky for Halloween. And in cases where history does amount to little more than legend... We are going to try to do our best to point that out, as we did with the LaLaurie episode of separating the fact from the fiction. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. The first haunted house on our list has a backstory that's actually very similar to that of the LaLaurie mansion, in that the creepy legend that's linked to it has to do with the mistreatment of slaves and is quite possibly largely embellished or even entirely made up. The legend we're referring to is the legend of Annie Palmer, also known as the White Witch. And that's not the White Witch, meaning the Good Witch, either. Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. So as the story goes, Annie was born in either England or Ireland sometime in about 1802. And when she was still a very young girl, she moved to Haiti with her parents. And it was in Haiti that she was said to have learned all about voodoo from her Haitian nanny, who was supposedly a voodoo priestess. And eventually, Annie's parents were said to have died while living in Haiti. And some believe that at that point, Annie was raised to adulthood by this voodoo priestess. So steeped in voodoo from an early Heavily age. Heavily influenced by it, yes. And Annie wanted wealth. And the way for her to get that was to marry a rich guy. So at about 17 or 18 years of age, she moved to Jamaica to find herself a well-to-do husband. She met John Palmer, owner of the Rose Hall Plantation. And according to an article in Canadian Travel Press by Ian Stalker, about 2,000 slaves that lived on that plantation as well. And John and Annie married in about 1820 or so. But Annie soon grew bored of her marriage, and a few years in, she was having affairs with slaves, perhaps because they clashed about her indiscretions or maybe just because she didn't want to wait to inherit his fortune. Annie killed John Palmer by poisoning his wine, according to the Rough Guide to Jamaica. After that first marriage, she's also said to have married three other guys and killed them as well, something that really reminded me of Delphine's legend as well. Meanwhile, though... She just kept having affairs, and and not just with slaves on the plantation, but also with other employees there. 
Just because she was seducing all of these folks, though, didn't mean that she was being nice to them. Descriptions of Annie Palmer as a extremely cruel slave owner rival descriptions of Delphine LaLaurie. Like I just meant, they seem kind of like twins almost. They do. She would keep bear traps out in the woods to discourage slaves from running away. She apparently liked to stand out on a second floor balcony and watch slaves be mistreated as if it were some sort of show down at the at the Coliseum. And she had her slaves kill people for her too, and, and then had those slaves killed by other slaves so that they couldn't talk and tell. Eventually, though, as the legend goes, all this violence did come back to her. She was strangled in her bed by the grandfather of a pretty servant girl that she killed because the girl happened to catch the eye of Annie's lover. Annie was entombed in an above-ground coffin in the east garden of the house, which apparently is still there. People tried to cast spells to confine her to the tomb, but many believe that it didn't work and that her ghost still haunts Rose Hall, along with the ghosts of all the people that she killed. So fast-forwarding a few years, and a family bought the home in 1905, according to a book called World's Most Haunted Places by Jeff Bellinger. But they quickly moved out when their maid died a mysterious death there. She apparently fell from a balcony. She was pushed, they believe, by some unknown force. And this was the same balcony that you mentioned that Annie used to stand out on and watch Watch people get mistreated. So in 1965, then, a couple of entrepreneurs from the United States, John and Michelle Rollins, bought the place and restored it, turned it into a museum, a pub, gift shop, banquet hall. The bathrooms and gift shop are apparently located in the dungeon of the house. Um, And today, visitors and employees claim that they can hear doors slamming, screaming, sometimes windows close and can't be opened, no matter how hard the staff try. I don't know if that's a maybe (laughs) kind of a symptom of being in the Jamaican climate. I'm guessing if it's anything like Georgia, but or ghosts, you never know. According to Bellinger's book, too, some staff members have even seen specters, uh, although it happens to be male employees who see them more than women for some reason. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there, except for maybe just that she used to pick on guys a little more since that's who she had her affairs with. But those who've looked into the actual documented history of Annie Palmer, though, have come up empty handed. It seems like she never really even existed, at least not in the way people think that she did. According to Polly Thomas's Rough Guide to Jamaica that we mentioned, there was an Annie Palmer. There's even a concrete grave for her if you take a tour, but she doesn't seem to have any real connection to this legend that we just recounted for you. She might have been confused with Rosa Palmer, who was the original mistress of Rose Hall. Rosa also had four husbands, but she's remembered as being quite virtuous. Still, many continue to have these spooky experiences at the house, and over the years, mediums claim to have sensed something here. So who knows what's going on? Maybe there is more to Rosa, perhaps, than the historical accounts tell us. Now, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, if some research went into Rosa's life because of the supposed haunting. Yeah, if there's anything to find, <laughs> who knows? Uh, okay, so that was a that was a good spooky start to this, but we're going to get even more historical, I think, for the next one. The next entry, which is Blickling Hall, is 
got some familiar some familiar names in it, people who've popped up on the podcast before. Yeah, someone that I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with, and that's Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife and mother of Elizabeth I. And the house she's said to haunt is Blickling Hall, as you mentioned, in Norfolk, England, and that's her childhood home. So just a little background on Boleyn. She was born about 1507, the daughter of Sir Thomas Boleyn, and she was introduced to the English court in 1522. Of course, King Henry VIII had already had an affair with Anne's older sister, but when he met Anne, he fell in love with her. Anne, however, refused to become his mistress. So Henry started the process of divorcing Catherine of Aragon. And ultimately, after many, many years went by, Anne became pregnant with Elizabeth I. And at that point, they really sped the the divorce up with Catherine and were secretly married. By June of 1533, Anne was crowned queen. But, I mean, everybody knows where, where this story goes. After miscarrying a son, Anne wasn't able to produce a male heir. That was, of course, what Henry VIII really wanted. And so with various political intrigues going on, he ultimately had her charged with adultery and incest. And she was beheaded for this May 19th. 1536. So good grounds, I'd say, for a haunting. Yes. And every year on the anniversary of her death, Anne's headless ghost is said to visit Blickling Hall in a carriage driven by a horse with a headless rider. She supposedly holds her head on her lap during these visits. So pretty spooky. Some other ghosts are said to haunt the place, too. Anne's father, Sir Thomas, who, according to an article by Nick McDermott in the Daily Mail, is supposedly cursed for doing nothing to save his daughter. Other ghosts that tend to frequent Blickling Hall include Sir John Fastolf, a 15th century knight who sold the house to Sir Thomas, and he was Shakespeare's Falstaff inspiration. So suddenly these hauntings are starting to sound a little more fun to me. I mean, (laughs) if the the real-life Falstaff is hanging around, that sounds better than the headless rider in the carriage and the head on the lap. That's true. I see that. More uh, like Harry Potter a little bit. The, yeah. The fun ghost, you know. I get it. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> I see where you're going. Another ghostly resident of Blickling Hall is Sir Henry Hobart, who was killed in a duel there in 1698. So visitors report seeing them, especially close to May 19th. So for some reason, they all kind of come around mm. during the anniversary of Anne's beheading. Very interesting. And then according to a 2007 article in The Telegraph, volunteers who work at Blickling Hall have spotted some other unusual things going on at the house, including a gray lady who sometimes comes through the wall and then disappears again. And in 2007, the National Trust actually named Blickling Hall number one on its list of Britain's most haunted historic properties. So clearly, some of these stories have gotten some some traction over the years. Yeah, and according to Famous Ghosts and Haunted Places by Gordon J. Lynch, Diane Canwell, and Jonathan Sutherland, an administrator for the National Trust supposedly saw Anne's ghost there in 1946, wearing a long gray gown with a white lace collar. And he spoke to her. He asked her if he could help her, and she replied, quote, that for which I seek has long since gone. I feel like I should say something serious there, since that is a creepy <laughs> quote, but I mean, good move on Anne's part. She knew the right people to talk to. She did. <laughs> Go appear before the administrator for the <laughs> National Trust, not just some 
Joe Blow visiting the palace. Right. Okay, so moving on, the next entry on our list, we're going to head south for it. It's considered one of the most haunted houses in Australia, and it's located in Junee in New South Wales, uh, an area of the country we talked about quite a bit last year with all of our outlaws. It was built in the late 1800s, around 1876 or so, as the home of the Crawley family. So Christopher Crawley had acquired the land it was uh, built on. Through the Robertson Land Act of 1861, uh, an act that basically tried to get rid of squatters in the area by allowing free selectors to purchase land for a quarter of the purchase price, as long as the purchaser intended to live on the land. This reminded me a lot of the outlaw episode. But Christopher and his wife Elizabeth, through this process, got a whole lot of land under the act. And even though they had a lot of land, initially they kind of struggled at trying to farm it for a couple of years. They lived in a little cottage on the homestead, didn't have a whole lot of luck. It wasn't until the Great Southern Railway started up in about 1878 that their fortunes finally began to turn around. The Crawleys opened a hotel right across from the railway station and became very wealthy and bought up a lot more land in the area. They built a grander house on their property as their wealth brought them better standing in the community. Uh, I think it was about 1884 or so that that happened. But that old saying that money can't buy you happiness, that old cliched saying, (laughs) it truly does apply here. Several unfortunate events happened at the homestead and to the family that ultimately ultimately added up to a rather troubled history. Yeah, the first one is a, a true tragedy. A servant dropped the Crawley's daughter, Ethel, who was only an infant at the time, down a staircase, and the little girl was killed by the fall. Afterward, the servant chalked up the, the fall to some sort of unseen force. She said that Ethel had been pushed out of her arms by some power she, she couldn't see or know. They had seven other children who survived, but in 1910, Christopher Crawley died at the age of 69 from heart failure after getting an infection. And after this, Elizabeth Crawley became something of a recluse. Uh, Just as a aside for you here, she's said to have been shunned by locals because of her Aboriginal heritage. So maybe this had something to do with her hiding out at home too, not just the fact that she was grieving about her husband. We're we're not entirely sure there, but she supposedly left the homestead only twice in her remaining 23 years of life. There is kind of a darker side of this, this, these years alone though in the house. A lot of sources say that Mrs. Crawley started acting very cruel toward her servants after her husband's death. There are some sources, including, uh, Xanthi Kleinig's article in the Daily Telegraph that suggests that it was both Mr. and Mrs. Crawley who were pretty tough on their servants, even saying they, quote, ruled their home with an iron fist, but might have been Mrs. Crawley. According to an article by Diana Platter in the Sunday Mail, Mrs. Crawley also always wore black dresses, a lace cap with a cape, and a beaded collar. All things that sound to me like distinctive ghost outfits. That's a very good point you have there. But there were several other deaths and acts of cruelty that occurred while Mrs. Crawley was living in the house. There was a maid who fell from a balcony and died. According to Kleinig, the maid was said to be pregnant. So it's unclear whether she was pushed or committed suicide in this instance. There was also a mentally impaired man, supposedly the housekeeper's son, who was chained up outside of the main house in what used to be used as a dairy room for almost 40 years. 
1961, the caretaker of the homestead was shot dead, also in that dairy room, by a local kid who had watched the film Psycho three times before heading up there. That's a creepy modern addition to the story. Elizabeth Crawley, though, died, and the rest of the family left the house by the late 1940s. But even though the house was put up on the market, it failed to sell for a very long time, which left it open for looters and vandals who really took their toll on what had once been considered a beautiful home. So the house was in pretty bad shape when Reginald Ryan and his wife Olive finally bought the place in 1963. And once they were there, they started noticing some pretty strange stuff, too. For example, according to Platter's article, they drove up the long driveway one night and saw that basically all the lights in the house were on. But by the time that they had pulled up to the house, all the lights went off, and they heard sounds of kids' voices, figures that weren't really there. But apparently this was not a turnoff for this new property they had bought. They weren't too bothered by it, and instead they stayed. They authentically restored the property, and eventually they opened the house for ghost tours, and they themselves acted as as tour guides. Yeah, and still do, I think. In Platter's article, Ryan actually said, quote, It changed my life, meaning the house changed his life, from the day I saw it. I love this place. They'll have to take me out feet first. I'm going to be the next ghost. <laughs> so, I mean, I think if you're going to live in a homeowner's house, dream, yeah, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the right attitude to have there. So all told, there are said to be up to seven ghosts residing at the homestead. A man in a brown suit with a long white beard has been spotted, for example, and assumed to be Mr. Crawley. Mrs. Crawley is thought to be hanging around as well and apparently makes her presence known in the home's drawing room. In the past, um, she's done this by taking down a giant tapestry there. I'm not sure. See, that's what I mean no. by her her distinctive outfit, though. Mm-hmm. That would be good to establish that for a few years before you come back as a ghost. Then people will know who you are. <laughs> You'll be like, oh, that's Mrs. Crawley. <laughs> yep, that's her. So there are supposedly some other spooky things that sort of tip people off to paranormal activity in the house, and that's these random cold spots as you walk through the house. Also, several visitors have experienced strange asthma attacks, and this kind of this creeps, creeps me out. out. <laughs> yeah, it, just feeling like they are struggling to breathe in certain spots, and then all of a sudden it passes almost as quickly as it came on. Uh, the corridor on the second floor, I think, is an example of one of the places where this happens a lot to people. Some people also hear piano music, but there's not a piano in the house. And according to Kleinig's article, guests sometimes hear kids playing out back around 4 a.m. And uh, the owner, Ryan, he says it's always around 4 a.m. for some reason, but he doesn't yeah, know why. it's creepy, too. Yeah. It's those little things like that that... that seem more disturbing than, like, there's false staff walking through. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so our our next entry is a truly upsetting story. And as you've probably noticed by now, a common theme with these historical haunted homes is tragedy. And, And the next entry on this list is really a prime example of that. So we'll start with the sad event itself. On June 9th, 1912, Joe and Sarah Moore and their four kids head out to a service at their Presbyterian church in Villisca, Iowa. Villisca at this point is a quiet little town. People who live there, for example, leave their doors unlocked, that sort of thing. 
According to a Salon.com article by Nick Kowalczyk, the Iowa Touring Atlas had just named Villisca, quote, one of the finest cities in the state. So it was thought of as a nice little town, maybe even someplace you would want to go visit. The Moors return home that night, though, changed all of that. They came home with two other kids in tow, Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were friends of the Moor kids. The Stillingers were going to be sleeping over that night. No one's quite sure what happened after that, but the next morning, a neighbor named Mary Peckham, who was 63 years old around that time, notices that the Moore house is unusually quiet. Joe Moore at that time ran a farm equipment store and typically got up pretty early to do chores before heading to work. And Sarah usually got the kids up early. And since the eldest kid was only 11, as you would imagine, things get pretty noisy. It's not at all quiet. So Mary Peckham goes over and knocks on the door after a while when she doesn't hear anything. She thinks this is weird. Uh, so she goes to check it out. No one comes to the door and she gets more concerned. Yeah, so eventually Joe's brother and one of his employees come over looking for him, come search the house. And what they find there when they go inside is truly horrifying. Every person in the house is still in bed, but they've all been bludgeoned to death, their skulls crushed by an axe. And, of course, a story like this became national. Reinforcements were called in to investigate, but the killer was never caught, even though some Villisca residents did become suspects and their reputations never quite recovered from the questioning. With the real story still shrouded in mystery, it's easy to understand why people have continued to visit this house over the years and continue to be interested in it. Several paranormal investigators have visited as well and believe that they've found proof of paranormal activity there. So you can also check out this house. They have tours. They have sleepovers. You can spend the night there if you want to. Some things that people have experienced while there, children's voices, falling lamps, flying objects. In Kowalczyk's article, he talks to a couple of ghost hunters who say that they've actually felt contact with the spirits of the victims. One had been pushed, for example, into a door jam. Another said when you wear shorts in the summer, you can feel the kids playing with your legs, kind of. There's another side of this, though, of the, the hauntings. And in the book Haunted Houses by Dinah Williams, she suggests that the main spirit who haunts the house isn't that of little kids messing with your toes. It's that of the killer. And she writes that some ghost hunters have seen a ghostly fog moving from room to room like the killer must have done that night. Some have also heard the sound of dripping blood. So it. I think that was the one of the stranger aspects of the haunting side of the story that people seem to believe or experience so different different kinds of of things in this home. So to end on a somewhat brighter note, because uh, that last story was pretty disturbing and a scary haunting also, and since it's an election year here in the U.S., we're going to finish off our haunted house tour with one of America's most famous haunted houses, and that is the White House. The White House, of course, has been the residence of U.S. presidents since 1800. And during John Adams' term, the U.S. Capitol moved from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. And so President Adams and his wife, Abigail, were actually the first to move into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the home wasn't entirely finished when they got there. That's where this haunting begins. So according to Haunted America by Michael Norman and Beth Scott, Abigail Adams had a 
pretty good attitude about living in this unfinished home. She still continued to entertain, to throw dinner parties, even with the construction going on all around her. She did have to get pretty creative, though, when it came to getting chores done, especially the laundry. And that's because most of the rooms at that time were just too cold or damp, too dry clothes in. So Mrs. Adams decided that the East Room was the driest place in the house and therefore the best place to hang her laundry. Her ghost is said to be seen hurrying toward the East Room, wearing her signature cap and lace shawl with her arms outstretched as if she's carrying laundry. So much like Falstaff, I would think that that would be kind of an okay one to see. I wouldn't mind seeing Abigail Adams doing her laundry, you know, maybe toss her my hoodie or something to wash along with the rest of her stuff. <laughs> Don't mix it with the the whites and colors, Abigail. But it is funny, though, to imagine that she would spend her, her afterlife washing laundry. How many people do you think would do that, I wonder? I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't even spend my life doing laundry. Several other notable ghosts, though, have been sighted at the White House over the years. Among them, President Andrew Jackson's ghost. He's supposedly still miffed about losing that election to John Quincy Adams in 1824. And according to Norman and Scott's book, Mary Todd Lincoln claimed that she could hear Jackson stomping around and swearing in the corridors. And this was 20 years after Jackson's death. And then the Rose Room, which was Jackson's bedroom, is thought by many to be the most haunted room in the White House. Lillian Rogers Parks, who uh, was a seamstress who worked in the White House for 30 years and wrote a book about it in 1961, claimed that she had this super spooky experience in the Rose Room. She was in there hemming a bedspread, and she said that she felt Jackson leaning over her. She ended up being too scared to turn around and look, but another You have to wonder, too, if Jackson is hanging around there upset about losing to John Quincy Adams, what happens when he runs into JQ's mom doing laundry? That's true. Awkward. Yeah, to say the least. Of course, there are other people who are unrelated to this family (laughs) that you might see in a ghost-like form, most notably President Lincoln. He's another White House ghost, and perhaps it's most famous. People have spotted him walking around the halls and in the Lincoln bedroom, which used to be his office when he was president. Some just say that they feel his presence, especially during times of national crisis. But according to History.com, Grace Coolidge, wife of President Calvin Coolidge, was the first to say that she'd actually seen Lincoln's ghost standing and looking out a window of the Oval Office. And then Winston Churchill, and this has to be the craziest detail in this show. (laughs) A very famous Lincoln sighting. (laughs) Winston Churchill, after staying in the White House during World War II, told a story of walking into his room naked, smoking a cigar after his evening bath, and seeing Lincoln sitting there by the fireplace. So, (laughs) I mean, what a way to end this show. What a way to meet President Lincoln. Yeah. (laughs) There have been other ghosts sighted in the White House as well, not just presidents and not just first ladies. Uh, The ghost of Annie Surratt, whose mother was executed for her involvement in the Lincoln assassination, and the ghost of a British soldier who helped set the White House on fire in 1814. way more awkward encounters here. Annie Surratt and Lincoln. I mean, yikes. Yeah, there's potential for a lot of awkward moments there. Ghosts have to work it out. I mean, they might have problems with each other. If you consider they have, uh, you know, all these possible relationships in life and then connections beyond life. 
they just have to deal with it, I guess. Well, that's why they're ghosts, right? Isn't they're that what some haunt people the think? Same place. Yeah, but they're they have issues to work out, so that's why they're still <laughs> hanging around. So yeah. maybe that's why they're all there together. They want to work it out somehow. Maybe, or maybe that's just too optimistic. Who knows? Well. It's been fun talking about haunted houses. I mean, we discussed the the type that you tour for a scare during Halloween in uh, one of our recent episodes. But there is some, some neat history behind a lot of these houses. And I just think it's cool that they get saved, too. You know, sometimes it's this weird story that saves a historic building, which... For, I'm for preservation, you know, so that's kind of neat to think about. A lot of houses like this, um, the abandoned one in Australia ends up with having a second life because it can be turned into a tourist attraction. Yeah, and it makes people interested in history, which is something we're always for. It does. Actually, most of these are ones that listeners have suggested to us before. And I think that's largely in part because they've visited these places and they've heard these stories on ghost tours or even from just regular tour guides who who toss out a a tale of a ghost every now and then. Um, So it's clearly captivating. Yeah. And even if you find out that the stories aren't entirely true, maybe they have some holes in them, maybe they have a huge hole in them or the story (laughs) is completely false. It's still interesting. It's still fun to learn the legend and it, you know, it creates an opportunity to find out more about the real history that's there. So we have some Halloween related mail here from listener Muriel, and it has to do with a episode that actually you and Kristen did. I wasn't in on this one. The trick-or-treating one. Yeah. (laughs) I missed out. I do love trick-or-treating, but you guys got to cover that, and Kristen did an excellent job. It was very fun uh, co-hosting with Kristen and all the other folks, too. But it looks like I get to read the letter from listener (laughs) Muriel. She says, My husband and I enjoyed listening to your brief history of trick-or-treating, especially on how today's traditions have evolved from ancient customs. In the podcast, you mentioned a couple of times that poison and candy is just an urban legend. We both instantly thought of a time when it was unfortunately not an urban legend. We lived in Houston, Texas around the time in 1974 when Ronald Clark O'Brien, a father in the Houston suburb of Deer Park, was convicted of putting poison in candy pixie sticks on Halloween and handing them out. He was charged with killing his own eight-year-old son in an effort to collect insurance money. Apparently, the poison candy was handed out to at least four other children, none of whom ate it before the police were able to retrieve it. One boy was found asleep in bed later that night, cradling the poison pixie sticks in his arms. He had been unable to pry it open before he fell asleep. Oh my goodness. Following that horrific incident, trick-or-treating was not done anywhere around the Houston area. Schools held Halloween carnivals instead, and some malls encouraged little ones to trick-or-treat store to store. O'Brien was dubbed the man who killed Halloween. Wow, so that was a a very sad, interesting follow-up to the trick-or-treating episode, and um, especially since we've talked about poison in this episode, too. Scary to think about. It is. I mean, it's one of those things that even if you went through your candy, would you have suspected that it was in there? Yeah. Oh, now we're going to scare everyone. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, we didn't mean to do that. So yeah, anyway, it was just a point we we did want to address since we we 
talked about that largely being an urban legend and because it is unfortunately a part of our trick-or-treating history or should be so thank you guys who wrote in about that and on a lighter note too thank you guys uh, all of you who wrote in to tell us about your unicef boxes Kristen and i were pondering over whether that's still a thing and when it was a thing because we didn't really remember it from our own trick-or-treating days but we have heard from so many people who, <laughs> who talk about they did the UNICEF boxes every year and always got a great response. So that's a, that's a nicer way to close out this Halloween podcast, get people in a celebratory mood. It is. Go visit a haunted house, have some fun, trick or treat. Happy Halloween. Yeah, and if you have some other Halloween stories that you'd like to share with us, feel free to write to us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And we do have a great article on haunted houses. I think we mentioned it in our earlier episode, but because some of these hauntings did remind us of Delphine LaLaurie so much, it seems appropriate to throw it out there again. Right. We have an article called Top 10 Haunted Houses, and it includes some of the ones we mentioned today as well as some other ones that you might be interested in, so you should check that out. We also have a whole article on the Winchester Mystery House. Oh, that's a great article. Yeah. And a crazy house. Yeah. I think it's Why Does the Winchester Mystery House Have Stairs That Lead Nowhere? By Molly Edmonds. Yes. By Molly Edmonds, our friend. So if you'd like to check that out, you can look it up on our homepage at www. HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.